Mark chapter number one. We are three weeks into a year plus series that we're going to be doing. Three weeks in, long ways to go. Mark chapter number one. Week number one, we just looked at one verse, the first verse, and we broke down the book of Mark. Last week, we saw John the Baptist preached, and he was an Old Testament prophecy coming to pass that a forerunner would come and prepare the way for Jesus. Last week, we concluded with Jesus' baptism. And we know that Jesus didn't need to get baptized because he was a sinner or because he, had, he was like us. He was not a sinner. But what we see is the fact that he was baptized, he identified with us. And also as being our high priest, if you read the book of Leviticus, at 30 years old, there was a sanctifying and anointing for the priest that would take place. And so he was sanctified with baptism and the Holy Spirit anointed him and he was ready for his mission. So you would think after that is done, what a great moment, right? To have the Godhead in the same place on earth together. The Father saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. The Spirit descending on him as a dove, and Jesus coming up out of the water. You would think that that would be the time for all the angels of heaven to cry out with the hallelujah chorus to start. And they could just start singing praise to God. But that's not how the Christian life goes. Jesus knows what it is like to live here on earth. He's been touched with our infirmities, the Bible tells us. What we see before our eyes in this passage this morning, and when we think about this today, the big idea this morning is this. It's costly to follow Christ. But the price is worth paying. When we sign up to follow the Savior, we're going to encounter suffering. It's part of the Christian life. And what we see this morning in this passage is that as soon as Jesus was baptized, look at verse number 12, and immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days being tempted, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. Now after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. Now as he walked by the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew his brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further thence, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who also were in the ship mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. Father, I pray the next few minutes that we have this morning that you'd be pleased and glorified. Help us this morning as we look at this passage. Help us apply it to our lives. I pray that you'd help us today. We need you. Bless those watching online this morning too, that you'd remove their distractions so they can be focused and get what you have for them as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The title of my message this morning is Gospel-Centered Living. 
what we see after Christ's baptism, we see three examples in Jesus, in the life of Jesus, that kind of describe things that go on in our lives, in the Christian life. You'll notice something with the book of Mark. There are words used often, immediately and straightway. And I think you understand what immediately means right then. So we look and we see in verse number 12, so as soon as the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, as Jesus comes up out of the water, immediately the Spirit of God drives him into the wilderness. And for 40 days, he's tempted of Satan. It's example number one that we see, temptation. The second example that we see is the fact that John gets put in prison. And as John's put in prison, what happens is Jesus begins to preach. And as he does, we see repentance. What repentance is all about, we talked about last week with John. We're going to talk about it with Jesus today. Their message was the same. And then the third example that we see was Jesus' call to his disciples to follow him. We see discipleship. Now, don't be jumping ahead and filling in all your blanks because I gave you an overview of everything, and now we're going to dive in and go one by one. Immediately, the Bible says that, he was, that the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. Number one, and as we think about gospel-centered living, what's going to happen? There's going to be terrible temptation. Temptation will come. As soon as Jesus is baptized, the Bible tells us immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. Now, there are lots of principles I want to give you this morning about temptation, but I want to make sure that they're biblical, okay? A lot of people say a lot of things about temptation. The problem is they don't do it in a biblical way. It's interesting to note, who drove Jesus to be tempted? The Holy Spirit drove Jesus to his trial. Say, why would the Holy Spirit do that? We'll find out in a few minutes. I want to give you some points, though. Think about this with me this morning. Temptation often comes, letter A, right after a significant spiritual experience. Maybe it's a moment of victory. Maybe there's an area in your Christian life that you've just been struggling with, and then all of a sudden you got some victory. That's when you got to be especially ready. Because when the guard comes down, because that's what we tend to do, we have a spiritual experience, we think, okay, we're good. When you start thinking you're good, that's the time you really got to watch out. What we see here is, you notice the word immediately. I already talked about it. It's one of Mark's favorite words. There's no lag time between the baptism and the temptation. You and I are most vulnerable when we're coming out of a great victory in life. Think about Elijah. He experienced it. He saw the fire of God consume the altar and the 450 prophets of Baal were killed. He saw, he prayed, and it hadn't rained in three and a half years, and God sent rain. He even outran the chariots of Ahab. But then Jezebel says, by tomorrow I'm going to kill that man. He runs for his life. 
he gets depressed and even asks God to kill him. There's no point in living anymore. You see great victory in the life of Elijah, and then you see after those great victories, you see the temptation came then. you got to be so alert, and you got to understand these things today. you got to understand every mountaintop. How do you get from mountaintop to mountaintop? you got to go down into the valley. You don't just stay up on the mountaintop. It would be nice if the Christian life was just mountaintops. I gave you paper to be writing this morning. Don't forget that. It'd be nice if... <laughs> it'd be nice. I told you the other day I was going to give you a hard time on Friday. You said something to me, and I said, I'm going to give you a hard time. And so the Holy Spirit's driving me this morning to give you a hard time. So, yeah, so... But when we think about this with temptation, life, we don't always stay up high. When you get to the peak, you got to come back down. You don't always stay up there. I've done several hikes, and I like getting to the top. I still got to, there's a couple peaks up at Mount Baldy. I want to go up to the top of those. I haven't done those yet. I've gone up several and gotten up pretty high, but I haven't ma- done one of the big ones. But you know the worst part is once you're there, you got to come back down. You can't just stay up there. And one of the nice things about being on the mountaintop or at the peak is you can see everything below, and it's just nice. It's peaceful. It's quiet. There's not a lot of people to deal with. Everything's nice on the mountaintop, on the peak. But then you come back down. You don't always stay on a peak. Temptation often comes right after a significant spiritual experience. Number, letter B, the Holy Spirit sends us into trials so we can learn to stand up to temptation. It's a biblical principle found right here. This is where Christians get lost, though. You've got to understand something. Satan did not get Jesus to go into the wilderness. Who led Jesus? The Spirit did. It's a capital S. The Holy Spirit of God sent Jesus into his trial. Who allowed Job to go into his trial? God did. So if God loves me, why would he put me in a trial? To teach us. To grow us. But let's make sure we understand something well this morning as we think about this. Look at what it says in that verse. It says, and immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. So you think about that word, driveth him. That's the same phrase that was used when Jesus cast a demon out of the maniac of Gadara. Cast out. When Jesus went into the temple and cast out the money changers, that's the same word. The Holy Spirit drove him there. That's where Jesus needed to be. He needed this at this time. I need to clarify something for you this morning. We got to understand that God doesn't lead us into, you think about this, He doesn't lead us into temptation, but he does put us in trials to grow us. That's why you got to be clear, you got to understand something. God will never lead you to sin. James 1.13, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. God does not lead anyone to sin say, well, how am I tempted then? How does that work? Take your Bibles with me to James chapter number one. I didn't put the rest of the verses up there, and I should have, but go to James chapter number one. You got to understand this. 
to make sure you get biblically what I'm talking about here this morning. God does not tempt us with evil. God will lead us to a trial. But what happens when we're in a trial? And sometimes that's where we get confused too. You say, what's the difference between being temptation and a trial? There's a difference between the two. And sometimes they go hand in hand together. But what we know, the fact that we know is that God cannot be tempted with evil and he doesn't tempt us with evil. So you say, well, if, I'm in, if God drives me to a trial, if the Holy Spirit leads me to a trial and I give in to that temptation, wasn't it God? No. Who was it? Look here at James chapter number one and look at verse number 14. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And James urges the believers here, do not err, my beloved. Don't don't get this, don't miss this. You see, the Holy Spirit might lead you into a trial, but he doesn't tempt you to do wrong. You know where most of our temptation comes from? Are you ready? Yourself. Because let no man say when he's tempted, God tempted me. God doesn't tempt you to do evil because God doesn't do evil and he would never tempt you to do evil. Why do we do evil in a trial or in a temptation? Because we do what we want to do. That's why. Or, and you, you could also say sometimes Satan does hinder us too and he'll tempt us. But I hear people say this often. Satan, it was Satan's fault. Satan tempted me. Satan is not like God. Someone could say that they prayed to God and God could hear them in five different, in thousands of places everywhere in the world, and God's everywhere at one time. In the book of Job, God talks to Satan. He says, where did you come from, Satan? He said, going to and fro in the earth. Satan cannot be in more than one place at a time. Only God is everywhere. Now, Satan has a bunch of demonic forces, so maybe they might tempt you. That is possible. But most of the time, the temptation and when we sin is not because God made us do it, not because Satan made us do it. We do it because we like to sin. We're drawn away of our own lusts. We know that inside of us dwelleth no good thing. We know that there's a battle still between the old man and the new man. And just because you're saved doesn't mean that the old man goes away. He's still there. And when we go into a trial, God does not lead us to sin. He does let us go through the trial. He does. And he will lead us there because he's trying to teach us something in the midst of it. But you've got to understand something. As the Lord, as the Holy Spirit leads us into a temptation or a trial, the Bible also tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to men. But God is faithful. And aren't you glad that he's faithful today? I'm glad he's faithful. And it says, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. So God leads, the Holy Spirit can lead us into a temptation. He also gives us a way to get out of there without sinning. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, God will never give you more than you can handle. Find that in the Bible somewhere. It's nowhere. They take this verse out of context is what they do. 
God doesn't say that he won't give you more than you can handle. God says as he, as he leads you to a trial, he'll give you a way you can escape and make it through. That's a Bible response. And I think a better way to word that too would be God won't give you more than he can handle. And he can handle anything. We need his help and his strength. When we talk about temptation here, think about the fact that the Holy Spirit sends us into trial so we can learn to stand up. And then the next thing, let her see, times of temptation and trials can last a long time. You and I don't get to pick how long they last. You say, but I would like to. I'm, we, I, we all want to. It's not our choosing. Jesus' temptation was 40 days here. Be 40 years. Be whatever the case may be. We don't get to choose. You've got your Bible still there in James, I think, or you turn back, but if you're still in James, look at what James says in verse number 2 of chapter 1 here. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. You're supposed to take joy in the trials that God brings in your life. How, why? Look at verse 3. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. A lot of people pray in their trials, Lord, take this away from me. That should never be your prayer. It needs to be taken away in God's time. Our prayer should be, Lord, help me learn what you want me to learn during this trial you've given me. Some people are dumb and they say, don't ever pray for patience. The Bible says right there to let patience have her perfect work. A biblical Christian prays for patience to get through their trial. And if you're stupid enough to think you shouldn't pray for patience, then go ahead and suffer through it. You need to pray for patience. You should. Because you don't want that, tri that trial. God has a time. God knows what he's doing. And you can't rush things with God. It was 40 days here, as we see for um, Jesus there's something about the number 40. Do you realize that in the Bible? How many years was, when Moses left Egypt, how many years was he in the wilderness? 40 years. When he got the children of Israel in Egypt and led them out and then they decided not to trust God, how many years did they wander in the wilderness then? 40 years. When the spies went into Canaan and they were there, how long were they there? 40 days. When Goliath would go out against Israel, how many, how many days did he go out? 40 before David stood up. The number 40 in the Bible has to do with trials and temptations. The number of testing. The number 40. Maybe someday I'll go through more numbers in the Bible and you can see how they all have a meaning and a thing behind them. But I don't think you need all that today. But you just see that there. But what you got to understand is trials could last 40 seconds. They could last 40 minutes. They could last 40 days. 40 months, 40 years, we don't get to choose. They could last a while, and you just got to trust the Lord in the midst of them. Letter D, sometimes we're called to suffer in isolation. There was no one there with Jesus, except it says, you see, it was Jesus and the wild animals. So it was Jesus and junior high boys, I guess, were the only one. No, I'm kidding. And so I think of wild animals, I think of junior high boys. That's what my mind always goes to. And uh, I got two laughs this service. Last service laughed a bunch more, you guys. But anyways, it was just Jesus. And sometimes we go through some things on our own. And 
when we think about this and we see this with Jesus, that's how it was. The Spirit drove him to the wilderness by himself to be tempted here. And let me just give you one other thought right here. And I even had last service, I had someone come up to me and they said they disagreed with me on what I'm going to say to you in just a minute. And if you ever disagree with me, you come tell me you disagree. I'm fine with you disagreeing with me, but I'll tell you something. I'm right, you're wrong, and that's fine. And I think I even said it like that. I said, like, and I said, and if I'm not right, what we'll do is when we get to heaven, if you're still concerned about it, we'll set up a meeting with Jesus. We'll sit down with him, and we'll both talk to him, and then he'll show you that I was right, and that will be fine. Jesus could not sin. Don't ever get caught up in the notion that Jesus could have possibly sinned that day when he was tempted. He's 100% man, but he's 100% God, and God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. For you to claim that Jesus could have sinned is to take away from the Godhead, and it's wrong. And that's what I said a few minutes ago before the service. But anyways, but if he was, in the, but this, well, why the person's, one of the questions, well, if Satan if Satan's so smart in things, how did he, why would he tempt Jesus if he knows that Jesus wouldn't sin? One thing's got to remember about Satan. Are you ready? There's only one that knows the heart of anyone. It's God. Remember the book of Job? God looks at Satan and tells him, have you considered my servant Job? How great he is. He's a just man. He's perfect. He's upright. He's a good guy. And what was Satan's response? You know, the only reason why he's good is because you bless him. Take, let me take the blessings away, and he'll curse you. Did Job curse God when that happened? No, because the Bible says, In all this Job sinned not, nor charge God foolishly. Why? Because Satan doesn't know the heart of anyone. Only God does. And God knew the heart of Job. Satan didn't know the heart of Jesus. He tried, but Jesus could not sin. He's incapable of sinning. And don't deny the Godhead and don't put Jesus down on our level because he's not. Yes, he was 100% man just like you and me, but he could not possibly sin. And to say differently is just arrogance, and I'll leave that with that. Letter E. We see that God will give us what we need to tackle temptation. Even when you feel isolated, you've got to understand something. You're never alone. The Bible tells us here that the angels ministered unto him. The word minister is the word for where we get the word deacon. It's the idea of to wait upon, to serve. It's the idea of serving food, which after 40 days, that's what Jesus needed. Maybe they brought him some manna. I don't know what they did. Now, it's interesting to note. You could write this in your notes this morning and save it for later. But the book of Matthew and the book of Luke go into great detail about the temptation. The book of Mark does not. The book of Mark just tells us the fact that Jesus, the Spirit, drove him into the wilderness. He was tempted for 40 days, and angels ministered to him, and that's that. But if you go to the book of Matthew or Luke, you actually see what did Satan tempt Jesus with. And you see, the, the coral, you see them respond back and forth. Say, why does the book of Mark not do that? Because that's not the goal of the book of Mark. The book of Mark shows Jesus as a servant. Jesus was mission-minded. So the whole way it's written is to say, yeah, he was tempted here, but he had a mission. And it's continuing the mission, which it gets into in these next verses. 
But you've got to think about this. If you were to take Matthew 4 and Luke chapter number 4, one of the things that you'll see, and I just want to give this to you real quick, when we think about God will give us what we need to tackle temptation, he gave Jesus those angels to minister to him. But what Jesus used in his temptation from Satan was the word of God. Every single time. Satan said to make these stones bread. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. He told him to fall off the pinnacle of the temple. And Jesus said, you're not supposed to tempt the Lord thy God. Every time Satan tempted Jesus, Jesus gave him scripture from the book of Deuteronomy. Something you need to realize and something to hold on to as well, and this is a side note, first service didn't even get this, this is extra for you this morning. The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter number 2 that we're not supposed to love the world and the things that are in the world. And it tells us what's in the world in verse 16. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are the three things. You go to the Garden of Eden, and you go there with Eve. The lust of the flesh, the fruit looked good to eat. It looked like it tasted good. It looked good. And she could be as wise as God, the pride of life. Satan attacked her in those three areas. What did Satan do with Jesus? He tempted him to make bread and to make breads, to make bread, stone, take, take the stone and make bread out of it. That's what I was trying to say there. The lust of the flesh. He was fasting during that time. And you know, when you, if you ever fast, everything looks good. Even vegetables look good to me when I'm fasting. I know that's a lie, and I know that Satan is tempting me to eat vegetables, but I'm not going to give in to that temptation. But the lust of the flesh. The second temptation that Satan used on Jesus was for him to cast himself off the pinnacle of the temple. If he did that, the angels would have protected him, and all the people would have seen it. And instead of them doubting him, they would have known that he was really God. And then the third thing was, if you bow down to me, I'll give you everything here. The pride of life. Satan attacks today the same way he's always attacked. And the Bible tells us we're not supposed to be ignorant concerning his devices. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's how Satan attacks. The best tool you have that God's given you to overcome temptation is the word of God. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. We need scripture. That's what we need. Scripture will help you. And when it comes to the Christian life and gospel-centered living, there's going to be temptation. Which leads to number two. Real repentance Real repentance. Both John the Baptist and Jesus preached the same message. You look at verse number 14, and I'm there in, uh, I'm still in James. That didn't look right. I'm glad that was the wrong spot. So verse 14 of Mark 1. Now after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Now, you notice something. There's time that um, goes away right here. John is now in prison. 
what the book of Mark does, it doesn't go into all the details about Jesus' life like some of the other Gospels will. John preached for about six months' time, and during that time, he called out King Herod for being an adulterer. Herod didn't like that. Herod put him in prison. So this is six months to a year after the temptation is where the book of Mark picks back up. So you see that. It says, now, verse, now after that, John was put in prison. Now, what I want you to understand is this. There's some time that skips in there. If you want to know later on and go back and see what gets skipped, the book of John gives you all those details. John chapter 2, John chapter 3, and John chapter 4 cover that time when from verse 13 to verse 14 of Mark. And what happens during that time? Jesus goes to the wedding and turns the water into wine. Chapter 3, he meets Nicodemus at night. And then chapter 4, the Samaritan woman. He has his ministry that started, but this takes up when he moves his ministry and when John the Baptist is in prison. So there's six months to a year that doesn't talk about in the book of Mark and goes right into these things. But what we see here is the fact that he preaches the same thing that John the Baptist did, repent ye and believe the gospel. So I want to give you a couple thoughts about this. The first thought is this, the gospel we proclaim comes from God himself. We see that Jesus came into Galilee, we read him preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. The word preaching means herald loudly. The gospel means good news. This was not a pep talk. This was not a rally of any sort. This was not a self-help discussion. Jesus was proclaiming the fact of the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, today, I grieve over many churches and many Christians who never even mention the gospel. It's all about everything else. The gospel is so important. I don't quote people often, and uh, I might not even agree with everything this person says, but this is what Greg Laurie said yesterday on Twitter. It's time for us to wake up as Christians and remember that the gospel is more important than anything. The gospel is more important than our preferences. It's more important than our politics. It's more important than anything else. The gospel is our message to our culture. What the world needs today is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when I say the gospel, the gospel is this, the death the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. There are many false gospels out there. Talk about a works-based salvation. Talk about all these different things. But the true gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we need today. And Paul was determined to preach the gospel. If we could all have Paul's attitude, 1 Corinthians chapter number 2, verse 2 through 5, for I determine not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I, was with, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of men's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And what Paul is telling us here, I deter, what I'm going to do, I don't care about anything, but that Jesus Christ is preached and Him crucified. That should be our goal. Hey, when's the last time you went on your facebook account your instagram account when's the last time you just said something about the gospel of jesus christ oh you can talk about your politics all day long you can talk about stubbing your big toe you can talk about your children you can talk about all these different things when's the last time you just talked about christ 
When's the last time with your friends, family, those people you know, you just talked about Christ and him crucified? That should be the message. That's what our world needs today. You know, our world doesn't need more, our, America doesn't need more red, and it doesn't need more blue. You know what America needs today? The gospel. That's what people need. You look at the mess we're in today, you want to know what can heal? It's not going to be the blue side of things, and the red side of things isn't going to heal anything. You want to heal things and make things better? You need the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we need today. And we see the gospel we proclaim comes from God himself, letter B. God's timing is always perfect. It says, now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. Reminds me of Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. We see in what we think about, and the idea of this, the fullness of time or time fulfilled, it means it's complete and totally developed has the idea of fruit being ripe, ready to eat, or a lady getting ready to give birth. It's that time. The time's fulfilled. That's what we see here. And Jesus, you think about this, he operated his life on God's timetable. Something that you would notice in uh, John, if this part that we skipped through, John chapter number two, that time. Remember, Jesus' mom says, he could turn the water and he could get you more wine. And what did Jesus say? Mine hour's not yet come. It's not my time yet. Later on, to a family member of his, one of his brothers, actually, he said, and I believe it was Jude, for my time's not yet come. When did his time fully come? Well, he fulfilled what he needed to, as we see here, and he started preaching. But it was fulfilled, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse number 6, for when we are yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. He did it according to the Father's plan and his timetable. It was done on time. And then we see the third thing here, letter C. We see the kingdom of God is close. Jesus came to let the people know that the kingdom of God is at hand. Which means it's near. And the summons is urgent. The basic idea is that God is active now and is ruling and reigning in human hearts. And before long, his kingdom is coming to earth. That's why, what is the prayer, the, the Lord's prayer, the model prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We should be praying for his kingdom to come. But we think about the Bible gives us some verses, and the Bible tells us in Luke 17, 21, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is God's people. And yes, the kingdom of God is not here present on earth. It's kind of this, in, this thing that's coming. But that's what, the, what Jesus said. Jesus also said in Mark 12, 34, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. It's coming. We're getting close. And that's why Jesus, the message was urgent. Repent ye and know the gospel. And then letter D, the gospel calls people to turn from their sins and to trust the Savior. The message is clear and it's concise and compelling. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Pretty simple there. We learned last week from John's preaching that when I talk about repentance, there are a lot of Baptists that don't like the word repentance. 
and just because they don't understand what repentance is about, and then they use it in the wrong terms. And there's a lot of people that use repentance in the wrong way. If you have to repent of all your sins in order to get saved, you are working your way to heaven. That's not what it is. I've heard many people say that. I've heard many people, I've heard many people say that certain people can't get saved because they live in sin. Prove that to me in the Bible. Because all of us live in sin. Repentance is a turning from. So before I got saved, before I knew Jesus, I was doing my best to do the best I could living in my sin. Someone gave me the word of God, I hear the word of God, and it says that Jesus, he's the way, he's the truth and the life. And the only way I can get to God is through him. Repentance is saying, you know what, God? What I've been trying isn't working, and I believe that Jesus is God. And you turn from what you believed in, and you turn to Christ. That's biblical repentance. Don't ever lose sight of that. Jesus' message, John's message was the same. And don't be afraid to use words that God uses in the Bible just because men are dumb and they can't use them without figuring it out. So, dumb isn't a nice word. I shouldn't use that word, but stupid was even worse. So I thought dumb. Dumb was a little better. When you follow Christ, it's costly, but the price is worth paying. We get to the close this morning. Gospel-centered living, there's going to be temptation gotta be real repentance and then there's demanding discipleship discipleship discipleship's important and discipleship i'm not just talking about taking a new believer and showing them the things of the word of god and helping them grow discipleship what is a disciple of jesus it's a follower every christian is called to be a follower of Christ. When we think about this, we close and we look at these last four verses. Look at verse 16. It says, Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, so Peter is Simon, Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the ship, mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. Jesus calls his disciples, and he makes strong demands of them. First he sees, now something you've got to understand with me. Think with me for a minute. This is not the first time he ever met Peter and Andrew and James and John. You got to remember, we skipped almost a year's time from verse 13 to verse 14. Peter and Andrew, James and John, were all followers or disciples of John the Baptist. That's where they began their ministry. And you can read in the book of John that Andrew goes to Peter and says, Hey, I've seen the Messiah. Because he was there when John said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. So these guys had a little bit of time to know who Jesus was by this time. This was not immediately after Jesus just begins. This, there was some time that goes away. That's one of the things. That's why it's important when you study the Word of God that you take the Bible literally for what it says and take it where it goes. There's a reason. That's why we're supposed to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. Because the Bible, there's 
tons of truth there, but you need to make sure you take it in context where it's at. And that means you've got to dive in a little bit more than just reading as fast as you can to get through your Bible reading for the day. And I won't say any more about that. But we talk about discipleship. Where does discipleship begin? It begins with following. What did Jesus say unto them? Come ye after me. In Bible days, often students would ask a rabbi or their teacher if they could follow them. Never did you have the rabbi or the master ask the students to follow them. It's completely backwards of how it was done. But Jesus called them to follow him. He's called all of us to follow him. What, what, remember they were called and they were first called Christians? Why were they called Christians? Because people saw them doing things that were like how Christ did them. What people saw was those believers there in Antioch, they were following Christ. That's our job today. We spend time with him. We walk where he's walked. We watch and listen to what he does so we can become more like him. We study the book of Mark to become more like him. And Jesus said in Luke 6.40, the disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be his master. We see the first thing he says, hey, follow me. Another gospel says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Here in Mark says, come ye after me. So discipleship, what, it starts out by following. He asks you to follow. Secondly, letter B, we see that Jesus gives the mission. He gives the mission. Jesus calls us to follow, and then he gives us our mission. And look what it says, and I will make you to become fishers of men. Now, these guys knew what it was like to fish, right? We see that before our eyes. They were, fisher, they, they were fishermen. But this, doesn't, this is not an easy process because this is what it says, I will make you to become fishers of men. Which meant it's going to take some time to get this thing figured out. Jesus was letting them know, I've got two, about two years. It's going to take you some time to be ready to do what you need to do. And really, truly, when you see them become fishers of men, the day of Pentecost, where Peter gets up, and says, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What was Peter doing? What he had been commissioned to do by the Lord. And what did Jesus say? Hey, guys, follow me, and I'm going to show you how to do what you need to do. And he gave them the mission. Now, when we think about fishers of men, we think about fishing and things. But that's not what the Bible's talking about here. I'm going to give you a reference to write down to look at later to save some time. Write down Jeremiah 16, 16 to 18. So Jeremiah 16, 16 to 18, and Ezekiel 29, 4. What you'll see by those Old Testament prophets, you see that God is mentioned as the fisher of men. And it refers to his judgment coming. So as we think about them being fishers of men, they were preparing people for judgment. But the fishers of men comes from an Old Testament prophecy, and I gave you those verses. He gave them the mission. He says, hey guys, follow me, and I'm going to teach you to do what you need to do. Which leads us to letter C. Now you've got to forsake some things. 
very interesting. You look in verse 17, and Jesus said to them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway, right away, they forsook their nets and followed him. Okay, let's think here for a minute. We know that Peter was married. Well, I believe he was married. He had a mother-in-law, and in all honesty, there's no need to have a mother-in-law unless you're married. So if you just want a mother-in-law for the sake of having a mother-in-law, good luck and more power to you. But um, that's just one of those things that comes with being married, okay? And so I have a great mother-in-law, and she's going to be here next week, so don't tell her I said that. But I only have a mother-in-law because I'm married. Otherwise, I wouldn't choose to have one. That's just, you know. But anyways, so he was married. Does the Bible tell us that he went home and told his wife? No. It says straightway, immediately. Andrew and Peter put their net down. They left their boat there. They put their net down, and they followed him. Look at what it says about John and James. Where were John and James? Um, that you put the wrong verse. You're trying to jump ahead of me there. He, Joe sometimes thinks he can read my mind. And, so, and most of the time he does, but he didn't read my mind that time. Go down to verse, um, now that I'm thinking about it, verse 19 and 20 of our passage here where it talks about James and John. And when he had gone a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who was also in the ship mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went with him. So Peter and Andrew just go. James and John are in the boat with their dad and all the hired servants. And Jesus says, hey guys, James and John, follow me. See you later, dad. They got up, left everything right there, and followed him. We can study other passages of the Gospels and see where Jesus told someone, follow me. No, I gotta go take care of some business before I can follow you. So another time, I got to bury my parents before I can follow you. People don't like this about discipleship. There's things you got to forsake. Jesus even made a hard statement that even Christians today have a hard time. Didn't he say something about you have to hate your father and mother? That came from Jesus. Those were his exact words. You cannot follow me unless you hate them. I wish I had the reference for you right now. But that's his exact words. You say, well, does that mean that Jesus wanted me to hate? No, that doesn't mean that Jesus wanted you to hate. That's people taking things out of context again. But your love for Christ should outweigh everything else in life to where it looks like you don't like everything else compared to him. He should be number one in everything. Over all. Let's make sure we understand something this morning. God, Jesus deserves to be number one in our lives. You cannot be a follower of the Lord when you have things that hinder you from following him. There should be nothing between you and God. Christians, we do a disservice to God in this area because we put a lot of things between us and God. Let's make sure we understand a few things this morning. My best friend in all the world sitting on the front row right here. I love her more than I love anyone else in this world. And there's no doubt about that. But let me say something right here. I love Jesus more than I love her. 
And I'd be doing a disservice if I didn't love him more. If he tells me to do something, I got to do what he says, not what she says. I have to follow him. I love my kids, but my kids are not more important than Jesus's. Jesus is number one. People don't like hearing that, but it's true. It's true. We have a lot of Christians today that are so focused on their kids that they let their kids do everything they want to do and they don't focus on God. My kids need to play sports. Your kids need to learn to fall in love with God, number one. If you can do sports and do all those things, do it, but when sports will take them out of church and away from the things of God, forget the sports. I love sports. I want my kids in sports. And if you can find leagues that let them do it, do it. I'm all for it. But God needs to be number one. What is hindering you from following the Lord that's stopping you? Peter and Andrew, they left their possessions behind their boat. I wonder how much that boat cost them, that net. What possessions are you holding on to that you're not willing to say, Lord, I love you more than I love those things? Discipleship is costly. You need to love God with everything. Isn't that what the first great commandment? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. That's the first and great commandment. And then to love your neighbor as yourself is number two. So you have to forsake all and put Christ first. And then everything else comes into play. That verse where Jesus says you have to hate father, hate mother, hate family and all that. He's not referring to you literally hating them. But in light of how much you love God, there should be a difference between the level you love God and the level you love everything else. But you got to put that in perspective too. If I don't love God like I should, I cannot love my wife like I should. If I don't love God like I should, I can't love my children the way I should. If I don't love God the way that I should, I can't love all of you the way I need to. But we get it backwards. We want to love everyone else, and then we add God to it, and it doesn't work that way. You cannot be a true follower of the Lord. The disciples forsook all and followed him. Someday we're going to get to heaven. Peter forsook all. History tells us that he was crucified upside down on a cross and died upside down because he didn't want to die the same death of his Savior. He didn't feel he was worthy enough, so he was crucified upside down. Think about John. He was basically fried in oil. Think about that one. They fried him alive, and he lived through it. And then they took him and said, we're never going to want to hear from you again, so we're going to put you on an island by yourself in the middle of nowhere, and it's just going to be you. That's when Jesus gave him the book of Revelation. When we get to heaven... We could go up to Peter. We could go up to John. Was it really worth it? Hey, you remember that day that Jesus came to your boat, Peter? He said, hey, come after me. I'm going to make you, I'm going to help you become a fisher of men. Was it worth leaving? Was it worth leaving your boat there, leaving all the things that you did? Was it worth it? Was it worth dying upside down on a cross? Hey, John. When Jesus came to your dad's boat and you left your dad and all that was going on, was it worth it? 
Was it worth it when you were fried alive? Was it worth it when you were banished to an island? Was it worth it? You know what they're going to say? Yes. Following the Lord is costly, but it's worth it every single time. Because we're going to stand before him someday. And we're going to see those nail prints in his hands and his feet. It's worth living for him today. Christian, you can get through your temptations. You can make it through. God's given you a way to do it. You can make it. Maybe you're here and you're not truly saved. It's time you repent and get saved for real this time. And maybe there's what's in your life hindering you from letting God work. I'm going to be giving up so much. That's the problem. We view what we're giving up. And what did Paul say in the book of Philippians? I have my education. I was this type of person. I have my race, my ethic, all these different things. I have my degrees, all these things. They mean nothing. But to know Christ, that is gain. You aren't losing and you're not losing anything to live for God. You're gaining so much when you live for Him. Following the Lord, it's costly, but it's worth it. If He could give His life for you and me, then we can live for Him. That's what we need today in Christianity. But Christians don't want it. You know the best thing you can do for your children? Is to forsake all and follow the Lord. That's going to help them. You be the example you should be. But what's hindering you? Money? Possessions? People? If you've been doing our Bible reading through the year, we were on Abraham for a while. God told Abraham to leave his family. Abraham didn't listen. Abraham took his dad and Lot went with him. Abraham's dad, it's funny, his name is Terah. His name literally means a stumbling block. Abraham's dad was a hindrance from Abraham being able to follow the Lord. And do you know when Abraham finally followed the Lord and did what God wanted him to do? And his dad died. I'm not telling you that God needs to remove people from your life. That's not what I'm saying. But what's hindering you from following the Lord? And sometimes people look at, I feel like everything's been taken away from me. Maybe those were the things that were hindering you from letting God work in your life. When you get to the point that he's all that matters, that's when you're ready to be a disciple of his and a follower of his. That's what we need today. Father, we thank you for the time that we've had in your word. We thank you for your faithfulness and for your love for us.